0: Listening to Chicken's Card CQ, the podcast all about absolutely 100% true facts that are not made up. I'm your host, Piper Dawes, and with me as always is Christopher Parr, director of the Munchausen Institute for Totally Real Research. Hello, Chris. Hello. Chris has gathered his favourite four facts from the Institute's activity this week, and he's going to share them with us today. Is there something you'd like to say to ease us gently into that process, Chris? Yes. In the words of Gold Hat, if he were an
1: academic and not a Mexican bandito with decidedly ungolden headgear. Facts? We ain't got no facts. We don't need no
0: facts. I don't have to show you any stinking facts. Good, as per usual, I have no idea what you're talking about. Here with the first fact of the show, as promised, it's Chris! <laughs> 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 All right, calm down. Sorry. The
1: RSPB uses fake eggs to catch illegal egg collectors.
0: Right, you can't go nicking eggs off birds. The RSPB have tried a few ways to combat this, including dressing up as the birds to ward off human egg poachers, gluing the eggs to the nest so it can't be taken, and injecting the eggs with a blue dye so that if they are stolen, they can be traced. However, these clever tactics have not stopped egg thieves from pilfering the potential progeny of passerine. So now they're using fake eggs, Chris. What exactly do you mean? I don't see how injecting them with a dye would work because the collectors just
1: put them on a shelf. They don't break them. They're not like running down the street with the eggs, smashing them on the ground going, woohoo, oh no, it's blue.
0: They'll know it's me. Well, no, I mean, Chris, I can't argue with you there because it didn't work. So yeah. right, good. So, collecting the eggs of wild
1: birds is illegal in the UK, as it can disrupt the conservation of rare species. Despite the bans on taking, selling, and owning wild birds' eggs, there remains a thriving black market for eggs, where collectors can buy and sell the eggs of endangered species like the capercaillie, the white-tailed eagle, the red-necked grebe, and the willow tit. Obviously, the RSPB, that's the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, a British charity which works to, unsurprisingly, protect birds and their environments, is very keen to put an end to the illegal egg market.
0: Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, they're not just protecting the birds, they're protecting potential birds. Yes.
1: One method the RSPB uses is to attempt to sell fake rare bird eggs to collectors or dealers and then have them arrested when the sale is complete
0: so basically what drug police do in films uh, okay instead of drugs it's eggs is there anything different about the the fake eggs other than they just look like normal eggs so that they can sell them and these guys just take them and then they then they arrest them that's it
1: yeah they're different in that they don't contain a bird embryo right yes
0: well that is good i think for everyone involved apart from the Egg thieves
1: sometimes they'll let the buyer go because the fake eggs have gps trackers in them and this allows them to track the buyer to either a private collection of rare bird eggs if they're a collector or a hub of illegal egg trading if they're a dealer of course this method only allows the rspb to catch collectors and dealers after the eggs have been poached not poached but poached And obviously the RSPB wants to curtail the illegal egg trade at the source, which is to say the nest. To do this, they set up fake bird nests with fake bird eggs, and sometimes even fake birds, to entrap egg collectors right at the point at which they steal eggs.
0: So the RSPB, do they have like an entire section of their company that just makes birds' nests then?
1: I wouldn't go as far as calling it an entire section of the company. But I mean, that makes it sound like it's on the whole floor of some high-rise office building in London dedicated to putting sticks together.
0: <laughs> yeah, actually, when you say it like that, it's not that complicated, is it? I could probably do it on a weekend. So how do the, the eggs themselves, how do the eggs know whether it, whether it's a predator or a human? What?
1: Usually, Piper, when you say something incredibly stupid, I can work out what you mean through context and just generally knowing you. But my Piper whispering ability seemed to have failed me now, because I have no fucking clue what you mean.
0: I thought the fact was about these fake eggs that were put in the nests rather than being dealt in, you know, back alleys or whatever with these egg dealers. So I thought that they were putting fake eggs in nests, that could like set an alarm off if someone was trying to nick them. How do the eggs know whether they're actually catching a human or just a normal bird of prey? Well, the obvious answer would be that there's either an RSPB
1: agent like watching the nest to see if anybody comes along to nick an egg, or that all they've got is a tracker in them, and then they just need to follow that. Because if the tracker leaves the nest... Then obviously it's been taken. And if it goes to a house in Islington, then no bird of prey, as you put it, is going to nick an egg from a bird's nest and fly all the way to a house in an urban area.
0: No, that's true. I don't know of any birds that own houses in Islington or anywhere else. <laughs> Before you say anything, <laughs> there's loads in Huddersfield, but Islington prices are far too high. <laughs> yeah, it's these southern housing prices, man. The birds can't afford it. <laughs> decided to do a history fact. Here's fact 2. The ancient Greeks weaponized bad poetry. People have tried to document bad poetry over the years, but it's it's usually been bad Due to the talent or lack thereof of its author, not characteristic of entire civilizations, apart from perhaps the Vogons. But now we hear that Greek poetry is so bad that they weaponize it. What in the name of Pam Ayres is going on here, Chris? Right, it's
1: not that all Greek poetry was awful. It's that they weaponized the
0: bits that were. Oh right. But that does beg the question is there somewhere someone that the Greeks hire to look through all the poetry and figure out the bad stuff?
1: Or do they write purposefully bad poetry, Piper? Stay tuned to find out. (laughs) So the region of Ionia in ancient Greece was the home of lyric poetry, so-called because it was poetry accompanied by a lyre, which is a stringed instrument. Lyric poetry was so integral to the cultural identity of Ionia that it even made its way into Ionian armies. There were, of course, the poets who recited verse to inspire Ionian soldiers to glory and beseech the gods for victory. But there were also poets whose job it was to demoralise
0: the enemy by reciting deliberately bad poetry. So they wrote, they wrote poems all the time, good or bad, but the good stuff was to make the soldiers feel good, and then the bad stuff was what, used for what? what? What did they use it for then? But no, you're
1: making out that all poetry was used in war. It wasn't that, it was just that they had poetry all the time in Ionia to the point where some of it was used in the army.
0: Right, yes, that makes sense.
1: So each phalanx of Ionian soldiers had a poet who would yell out the vile verse. At the very least, it was hoped that the poorly written poems would distract the enemy and, at best, drive them into an indiscriminate rage in which they were just as likely to kill their own comrades as the Ionians. It is thought that the poets read their crappy compositions to the Ionian soldiers before a battle so that they would be already familiar with it and hopefully not affected during the heat of battle.
0: In the hopes they'd already be familiar with it. I don't quite understand.
1: So it's bad poetry that sends people into a rage because it's so bad. Yeah. So it might affect your own soldiers as much as the enemy soldiers. So you read it to them before the battle so that they already know the bad
0: poetry so they're not affected by it when they're fighting. Right, so they're going into battle already aware of this bad poetry. Yes. I'm not sure I follow this. Like...
1: imagine it's not poems but it's jokes and it's like they're going to read a really funny joke to the enemy so they just like roll around on the ground laughing and they can't fight you yeah 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 the danger is the same could happen to your own soldiers so you tell your own soldiers the joke beforehand so when they hear it again it's not as funny so they don't roll around on the ground laughing and they can fight instead
0: ah right no no i see i see okay so we're sort of they're making sure that there's safeguards in place for when they hear it again On the battlefield. Yes. I don't know why I'm having so much trouble with just general concepts at the moment, Chris.
1: At the moment. Fucking hell. So the position of rubbish rhyme reader was not a popular one, as enemy soldiers would often be sent into such a fit of poetry-based peak that they would focus all of their attention on the poet, which was good for the Ionian soldiers, but bad for the poets themselves consequently bad poetry reciter was also a very well-paid position in the Ionian army
0: so obviously I can't let you get away with speaking all about all about this poetry Chris without telling us some of the poetry itself do you have any examples of the terrible poems that we used on the field of battle in Ionia
1: well, these weaponised poems were never written down, perhaps because the Ionians feared that their enemies might get hold of them and use the poems against them. We do, however, have an account from historian Apollonies, who claimed to have heard one of these poems and lived to tell about it.
0: Are these like people who just write down history stuff?
1: Or historians,
0: as they're commonly known.
1: Uh, so this is obviously translated from the Greek. And there's no actual evidence this is a poem that was actually read out on an Ionian battlefield. We've only got a these word for it. But here goes. Oh Athena, your hair is so nice, and strong Ares with all those muscles. Our spears are pointy, and they go stab, stab, stab. But maybe you could help us to do better stabbing with our pointy spears, oh Athena of the nice hair and muscly, muscly
0: Ares. Yeah, it's not great, is it,
1: Chris? (laughs) No, it's not.
0: Ah, another fact is hurtling towards us. Chris will now wrangle it into our earlobes. A
1: psychiatrist cures phobias through role-playing.
0: Right, as a, a lot of you may or may not know, I fear things that buzz. I've tried a lot of things to cure myself, including exposure therapy, listening to those idiots that say they're more afraid of you than you are of them. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, side note, they're not. Have you seen wasps and things? I mean, they don't give a shit, do they? Hypnotherapy, you name it. I've tried it, except for except for role playing. I've not done that. Not to cure my irrational fear of things that buzz. Not tried, not tried role playing. Should I give it a go, Chris? You can if you want. I'm the boss of you.
1: So, a phobia is the irrational fear of something like spiders or heights. Or peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth.
0: Is that an actual fear?
1: It is. What? So this psychiatrist, Dr. Jonathan Crane, believes that people are frightened of what they don't understand and that phobias are just an extreme example of this. People don't understand how spiders' legs move in that weird spidery way. They can't really comprehend really high heights and they don't get why peanut butter sticks to the roof of your mouth. So Crane has developed a therapy for phobias, which involves patients living as what they're frightened of for a week to better understand the subject of their fear and hopefully cure them of their
0: phobias. How do you roleplay as peanut butter, Chris?
1: (laughs) Well, it's fairly easy for people who are scared of an animal. Arachnophobes, people who are scared of spiders, can crawl around and eat flies and pretend to make webs for a week. Ornithophobes, people scared of birds, can tweet and pretend to fly. Orphidiophobes, people scared of snakes, can slither about on the ground and
0: hiss. But what about more complicated subjects?
1: Yes, so phobias centred on more abstract things are trickier to deal with. But Crane has found solutions. For example, acrophobes, people scared of heights, can't live as a height for a week.
0: (laughs) No, no, that's true.
1: But they can live as a bird and in doing so can get used to at least the concept of heights as they pretend to fly.
0: So in some ways, this, this does sort of verge on the exposure therapy thing. But he's saying that it works because you're actually understanding the concept of heights better rather than the fact that you're getting used to the fact that you're up high. Yes. I'm in a
1: similar vein. People scared of flying can live as an aeroplane for a week. What does that entail? Taking on passengers, flying from New York to London, or pretending to. Handing out little packets of peanuts.
0: So, yes, yeah, so obviously role-playing can be as, as intense as you decide, I suppose. You can put your arms outstretched and kneown around and then, you know, you're role-playing as an aeroplane technically. But, you know, when you say taking on passengers, that sounds a little more complicated. And, and... Well, you just imagine that you role-play it, Piper. Right, yeah, OK, yeah.
1: You think, I'm a big old aeroplane and all these people are boarding me and it's fine. Um, another example is tonitrophobes, people scared of thunder, could live as the Norse god Thor, wielding a hammer and pretending to slay frost giants.
0: That's interesting because, like, it sounds like in some ways, like, process that you go through is it's not just sort of understanding the concept of thunder. Sometimes it's becoming the thing that controls thunder. So, like, it gives you power in an otherwise powerless situation. I quite, I quite like that, Chris. I might give this a fucking go. I'm going to be a wasp. And how will that give you power over wasps? Surely you would role play as a wasp queen. I wouldn't need to be the queen wasp. I don't need those lofty heights of famedom. It's fine. Just a normal wasp. It's better than being stung by one. I mean, the little fucking wankers, I hate them. I really hate wasps, Chris. I mean, I I can't stress that enough. They're horrible little bastards. Well, they say nice things about you. Do they? (laughs) So if you underwent this this therapy yourself, Chris, what would you be living as?
1: Well I don't have any phobia, so what? None at all. No. When I was a kid, I thought that everybody had a phobia and an allergy and I was concerned because I hadn't found mine yet. But then I grew up and realized oh, that's stupid.
0: No, but that's so cute. I love that. That's actually lovely. So what so you thought that every child born was allotted? Specific phobia analogy.
1: But not a lot just had it. It It's like genetic or something. There's a doctor there with a a stamp. Spiders! (laughs) Tree nuts.
0: I've recently learned that clever use of alliteration can switch on the listener's critical analysis centers in their brain and help them to listen better. So here's the fourth and final fucking fact. An
1: alliance of fascists attempted to win the 1938
0: World Cup. Since at least the early 20th century, fascism has tried to win a bunch of things, sometimes arguably unfairly. So it almost comes as no surprise to me that they give football a go. How did this come about, Chris?
1: So, Germany, Italy and Spain all had fascist governments in the late 1930s, ruled by Adolf Hitler, Benito Mussolini and Francisco Franco, respectively. What's more, all three countries qualified for the Football World Cup in 1938. In order to quell criticisms levied against fascism from around the world, the three countries formed a football alliance to try and ensure that one of them won the tournament, thereby proving the indomitable power of fascism.
0: Oh, right. So they all clubbed together then? That's what an alliance means, Piper, yes. (laughs) Seems pretty devious, Chris. Doesn't seem fair to football. I guess you probably wouldn't expect much more from fascism. So what did they do to try and ensure they won then?
1: So during the round of 16, the German, Italian and Spanish teams helped each other by sabotaging each other's rivals, doing things like bribing referees, putting itching powder in opposing teams' kits and sometimes just straight up murdering people. Consequently, all three teams made it to the
0: quarterfinals. These tactics work then? Yes, they did. They're not fair though, are they? They're not. I mean, I don't think you're allowed to use itching powder and stuff in football, are you? No, you're not. Right. So in the
1: quarterfinals, despite all the fascist shenanigans, Spain lost their match against Sweden. Germany and Italy, however, made it through to the semi-finals. The plan then was for Germany and Italy to both make it to the final so that a fascist football team was guaranteed to win. Presumably, they would have been consummate sportsmen and played fairly against each other. However, foreshadowing their later heel-face turn in World War II, Italy betrayed Germany by allowing Sweden to beat them and then went on to win in the final.
0: Oh, Sweden went on to win in the final?
1: No, Italy went on to win in the final.
0: They let Sweden beat them? In the...
1: In the semi-finals, so Italy and Sweden went through to the final,
0: and then Italy won. Right. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Do we think that, that it was a good use of their time and resources?
1: Well, arguably nothing is a good use of time and resources by
0: fascists. No, that's true. I mean, from our point of view, definitely.
1: Yes, and historically, our point of view is the only one that matters, because they lost
0: good point i just mean like in in terms of their plan i mean what a fascist want? ultimately they just want what world domination i mean do you think football was really going to get them there i guess it was a start today the world cup tomorrow the actual world
1: what are we going to do tonight brain same thing we do every night pinky try to win the world
0: cup That's it. That's the end of this episode of Chickens Can't See Cubes with me, Piper Dawes. I can be found on Twitter at Piper Talks and Christopher Parr from the Munchausen Institute.
1: I can be found on Twitter at Trilby Norton and the Institute can be found at New Muinfotore, ray ray m u i n f o t o r e r e
0: You can also contact the podcast on Twitter at C Cubes, that's S W C U B E S, and Facebook and Instagram at Chickens Can't See Cubes. If you want to join in the conversation on Discord, PMS for a link. Thank you for listening to chickens can't see cubes and remember you probably could make it up but we haven't honest and we'll catch you once again on next week's show bye everyone bye So you you telling me you're not afraid of anything, Chris? Not irrationally, no. Oh well, yeah, feared of all the afraid of all the normal stuff. Yeah, you know,
1: nuclear war, climate change, the Joker.
0: Wait, the Joker. Yeah, what if he comes into my house and uses the Joker gas on me? That that might be an irrational phobia, Chris. So if you had to live as the Joker, what would what would you be doing? Uh
1: well, I guess I'd be laughing a lot. Yes. I'd be taunting Batman, obviously. And I'd be poisoning the reservoir.
0: Right, yes. Um, Well, it is important, as we've established, to make sure that the boundaries of role-playing don't infringe on other people's health.
1: No, I'd be pretending to poison it. I'd be pretending to poison a pretend reservoir with pretend poison. Pretendedly. Pretendedly, (laughs)